I got so upset about this. I thought, wow, that was kind of an extreme response. You don't know this kid. You don't know those kids. Why are you so emphatic? Why are you so emotionally affected by this? And I started thinking, well, I don't know if it's my background. I don't know if it's my upbringing. I don't know if it's my mindset. I don't know what it is. But I think I thought, well, am I different than everybody else? Would anyone else react differently to that? And I realized that there are different personality types. And there's a personality type that instead of getting angry at those bad kids, they would have just felt bad and sad and empathetic and sympathetic for the victim. Or they would have thought, I've got to run and get somebody to help. All I wanted to do was grab those kids that were doing this and beat the dog crap out of them. This is the Church Security Made Simple podcast, giving leaders practical solutions to help make your community safer. I'm your host, Simon Osmo, and I'm on a mission to keep his churches safe. Now, it's been over 10 years since the Lord called me into security ministry, and as a national church safety practitioner supporting churches across the country, I'll share my expertise to give you simple solutions to keep your church safe. So if you're ready to make your church security simple, come join me and let's dive into this week's episode as we learn how to plan, prepare and protect our ministries. So Michael, I think a good place to start is how you got involved or interested in the subject of sort of active violence, active shooter. How, how did it come about that you became an expert in the field? Well, I mean, my security experience goes back to when I was a little kid. My dad started our company when, in 1967. So I literally grew up in security and investigations my whole life. So, you know, he programmed me with a security mindset situational awareness, you know, head on a swivel type of stuff. So I've always kind of been there, which leads into the fact that around 2013, I started, I was seeing these videos and hearing these stories about people that were killed in active shooter incidences. And in the videos, I'm, I'm seeing people freeze, do the wrong thing, do nothing. You know, it's like they didn't know what to do in these situations, either leading up to or once the event began. And I'm thinking, why are you doing that? Or why aren't you doing this? And I got frustrated and, and angry. And I thought, well, what's wrong with them? Why don't they know what to do? Or why are they doing anything? And I thought hard and long. And I, I was like, well, they just, I took for granted what my dad taught me, you know, head on a swivel, situational awareness, taking action, being empowered, moving forward, and realized that not everybody's brought up that way. So I thought, well, maybe I can fix this or maybe I can do something about it. Maybe I can help some people. So by teaching them what I know. So I went to about four different active shooter train the trainers. And by the fourth one, I thought, you know what? There's a lot of good stuff in these, but it's not what I would do or I would do that differently or I would double down on that. And so I thought, you know what? I'm not going to teach somebody else's methodology. I'm going to create my own. And that's when I went, well, what should I call it? Alive sounds like a pretty good acronym. So I created the acronym. I took the word and I started creating the acronym from it through the letters. And that's how I came up with Alive, which stands for Assess, Leave, Impede, Violence, and Expose. And the Leave, Impede, and Violence coincide with Run, Hide, Fight, because that is a good thing to remember. It's like a stop, drop, and roll if you're on fire. It's easy to remember, but I wanted more. Run, Hide, Fight wasn't enough, and they didn't focus enough on the fight. And I didn't, it didn't, it wasn't empowering to me. So alive, you know, assess, 
leave impede violence, that's empowering. So not a victim mentality. So that's where it started. And it's interesting you say that because I've got two sons, nine and 12, and actually I think it was, I think did Uvalde happen on a Monday, I can't recall, but a few days before my 12 year old came back from school and he said, Dad, he said, I'm not too sure the teachers know what we're doing. I said, well, what do you mean? And he explained, but you know, they sort of, they just didn't seem to have a grasp as to, to what to do during sort of one of, our, one of their drills. And then I think it was a week or so after my nine-year-old came home and maybe because of the Uvalde, they're sort of practicing the drill. He came back and said, Dad, he said, we'll turn the, we'll turn the tables over and we hide in the corner. And it was a great teaching opportunity to say for me to say to both my sons, I think similar to how you've been been raised, saying, well, well, sons, you know, you know what you need to do to stay safe. You know, you own your own personal safety. But it does still amaze me that in today's world, I think you're right, there's a lot of courses out there, but perhaps they're not being real, they're not being transparent. And, you know, when I read your book and I've seen your stuff on, online, Michael, I, I like the way you teach it because there's a rawness to it which has to be taught that, you know, these are things that you are going to feel. My program's not popular with everyone because like you said, it is raw. It's real and it's in your face because guess what? When somebody comes to your doorstep to commit violence, to try and kill you and the people you care about, there's no time for being light and fluffy and sweet. You got to take care of business because it could mean your life or the life of, you know, the people you care about. So I am in your face about it. I am real about it. And I tell people the hard, cold reality of these situations, and some don't want to hear it. I've had Silicon Valley potential clients when talking about using my program, and I, I tell them the acronym. They go, well, we don't really like violence. We don't, let, we don't allow violence in our culture. And I said, well, guess what? You don't always have control of what happens in or to your culture. And if somebody shows up at your doorstep, like happened at YouTube, and starts trying to kill people, they've brought violence to your doorstep. You damn well better be prepared to counter it, or you're dead. So, you know, I mean, they've had they've asked me to change it to run, hide, tell, uh, and all this, you know, water it down and dumb it down, and I won't do it. I just won't do it. I'm not doing anyone any favors by not sharing and teaching them the reality of these situations so they truly can be prepared for it. And one of the subjects I want to go into very quickly is about the survival mindset. And my my eldest son, I mean, he's 12 years old. He comes to the, the range of me and he shoots my AR. He doesn't really know what I'm conditioning him for. But the only thing that my son doesn't have is access to the firearm. But I know if needed, he can take the AR, he can load it, he could point it towards someone and only he knows could he pull the trigger, but I've been conditioning him at an early age to have those life skills. For me as a Christian, praying that he never needs to do that, but he's being conditioned by me to do that. So, and part of that is giving him that survival mindset. And I know you talk about that in the, in the book, Michael, not everyone has that survival mindset, but I mean, do you mind sort of talking about what it truly means to, to have the survival mindset, knowing that one day, you could face an adversary, and it is you versus them. Particularly the statistics show that these aren't just homicides, these are suicides. They don't intend to walk out the door or be alive if you're in an active shooter situation. They're going to kill you and statistically kill themselves. What does a survival mindset mean, Mike? Okay, so I can't talk about the survival mindset without starting with the security mindset. They're both equally important, and we teach equal parts of security and survival mindsets. The security mindset is what happens prior to an incident, okay? And when I teach people, when I when I teach this program all over the world, 
I say congratulations. Right now you are experiencing security mindset, which is learning, training, drilling, avoiding danger, all of the things that we do prior to an incident. This is proactive. This is what do I do in this situation? What should my where should my head be when this situation happens? All of the things leading up to, and then bam, the incident happens. There's a shooter, there's any form of violence that could hurt you. Now you transfer from security mindset to survival mindset. They they are they don't coexist. You don't they don't happen at the same time. Security mindset, event, survival mindset. The survival mindset is literally a forward motion, taking action, empowered mindset of I am going to think rationally, not emotionally, because we lose ourselves in emotion and then we can't process stimulus and we make mistakes. That's a fight, flight, and freeze. Freeze comes from taking that stimulus and reacting improperly to it. Survival mindset is being determined and committed to doing whatever is necessary to leave that situation and go home to the people you love and care about. And it's very, very important. And it's something that needs to be focused on and pondered and prepared for and committed to before you ever need it. Because when's the worst time to create a plan? When you need a plan. Survival mindset has got to be just absolute commitment to making it out of there and doing whatever is necessary if it means taking the life of the person that's trying to kill you. And, you know, I tell my audiences, I don't believe humans are born violent. I think it's something we learn. And unfortunately, some people have learned it and they're that way to other people. But some who are uncomfortable with the idea of violence, and one of the exercises I do in my program, I call it very simply the can you take another human life exercise. And I ask that question in every one of my classes. And about every third or fourth class, there will be at least one person that says, I don't think I can take another human life. So I say, may I prove you wrong? May I do something with you to show you that you have what it takes? They say yes, and then I say, great. I ask them, okay, how many children do you have? What are their names? Now I want you to picture your children's faces on this person or these people right here. And I'm a bad guy, and I've got my finger gun pointed at your child who you love dearly and never want to live without. And at the count of three, when I get to three, I'm going to pull my trigger, and I'm going to shoot this person that you love so much, and then I'm going to turn my gun on you, and I'm going to shoot you, and I'm going to end your lives, and you're never going to see each other again. And everyone that loves you will never see you again. And all you have to do is point your finger gun at me. And I say, put your finger gun up at me. And they point their finger at me. And I say, all you have to do is, before I get to the count of three, pull your trigger. Okay, ready? One. And they pull the trigger. And oftentimes, it's very often women that, uh, because they're more sensitive or whatever, compassionate than men, they're, it's harder for them. to, And they're less violent, I guess, by nature. I don't know. When, oftentimes, they're sobbing by the time we get there because they're literally thinking about never seeing their children again. Now, it's a very powerful exercise. It can be very emotional. It's been emotional for me while I'm doing it. But that is the commitment to survival that you have to have. And that is the survival mindset that you must have if you're going to come out of a situation like this because people don't understand you do have a say in the results you do have a say in the outcome you can change the outcome if you think and do what is necessary if you don't and you just stand there and freeze you're probably going to be a statistic i like what you said there because it reminds me of a conversation in my course that i have with people when it comes up well what if someone is disabled or they're unable to run away um, or to fight. What, what does that? What does that mean? And 
you know, similar to your exercise, you know, I ask them to, to close their eyes, you know, and imagine you hear gunfire and you've got someone in a wheelchair or you've got a 95-year-old lady in the church. And I said, I don't need to know the answer, but the Marines say the body can't go where the mind hasn't been, you know, and think now, what does that mean for you? Are you going to pick up that 95-year-old person, throw them over your shoulder and try and run out the door? Uh, are you going to save yourself or are you going to stay in the moment and fight knowing that they're unable to fight themselves if they're disabled, you know, Down syndrome, whatever it might be? And I think similar to you, it always gets a strong mixture of emotions, but it really, as your example does, it really pushes them to say, but well, you, well, you may, you don't want to, but you may have to do these things. And we don't need to know what your answer is, but you need to understand that it is a you versus them situation or you can reclaim advantage by thinking in advance what is my response it's going to be as powerful stuff powerful in my program i always tell people and i tell all my my instructors make sure you make it clear to your audience that you're not there to tell them it is their job to be a hero we can't tell somebody forget about your own life and save that 95 pound you know or 90 year old woman or a person in a wheelchair oftentimes that will be an instinctual thing. They will either know to do it or they won't. You know, there's there's sheep and there's sheepdogs, and that's just life. So I tell people, my job is not to tell you to be a hero. If you have an opportunity to take down the shooter or to save me, I hope that you will choose to do that if you feel comfortable doing so. Your job is to get home to the people you love and care about. I think you're right, man. Again, in some courses, but they infer that, right? But you've got to do these things. Well, no, I mean, as I said to my two young sons, nine, 12, do what you feel you need to do to, to stay safe. You you may want to be a hero, but you know do what you feel comfortable with. And it moves on to something I wanted to talk about because I work with a lot with churches and nonprofits. And I'll be very honest, a lot of the people that I'm talking to, I don't come with the sort of tactical stuff that you do in your executive protection programs, but the fight, flight, freeze often comes up in, in conversation. Uh, and people say, well, well, how do I know which one I am? And I guess because you do a tactical side, Michael, is there anything that you found where someone can test in advance which one they are? Or is there a way that you found through some of your tactical training people can perhaps change if they are like a sort of a freeze? You know, I, I don't have like a litmus test or a, you know, a reaction monitor or any kind of exercise that will help someone decide or figure out who they are. But one thing I thought about one time a few years ago, I remember watching a video and it was, I don't know, YouTube, something online. And I remember a, it was a story about a kid walking home from school. And one of the other kids videotaped this, this, this kid walking home, tall kid, tall, skinny, but you know, he's a kid, early teenager walking home from school. And there's a bunch of kids hanging out in an alley. And this kid starts to walk through and these other kids decide to bully him and they bully him and they, and he doesn't want any part of it. He's scared. He just wants to get through. They're like predators, right? Preying on, on a weak animal. And they literally beat this kid so badly, they either broke his neck or killed him. I don't recall what it was. Wow. But I remember thinking to myself as I'm watching this, I became so enraged that I wanted to dive into my computer monitor and grab each one of these kids by the neck and just beat the living dog grip out, crap out of them for being predators and for victimizing the weak. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I, I had to think about that. I got so upset about this. And I thought, wow, that was kind of an extreme response. You don't know this kid. You don't know those kids. Why are you so emphatic and why are you so emotionally affected by this? 
And I started thinking, well, I don't know if it's my background. I don't know if it's my upbringing. I don't know if it's my mindset. I don't know what it is, but I think I thought, well, am I different than everybody else? Would anyone else react differently to that? And I realized that there are different personality types and there's a personality type that instead of getting angry at those bad kids, they would have just felt bad and sad and empathetic and sympathetic for the victim. Or they would have thought, I've got to run and get somebody to help. All I wanted to do was grab those kids that were doing this and beat the dog crap out of them. I was so angry that they would do this to somebody weak. And I mean, I'm very introspective and, you know, I like to try and think that I, I like to think that I'm self-aware and I really analyzed and processed this because I thought, I'm not sure that's, that's a healthy reaction on my part, but I was really overreacting. And I thought, well, maybe this is the difference between sheep dogs and sheep. Maybe that's, maybe, maybe the sheep are the, the caretakers that want to help, you know, extract the child or help them or go get help. And the sheep dogs are the ones that want to rush in and fix the problem. So I actually tried that a couple of times and I said, okay, folks, I would like to give you this scenario. What is your reaction? And I spoke to the audience and it was interesting where there was a small amount of people who wanted to do exactly, they got angry and enraged that this happened and the rest got scared for the kid or they wanted to help him or whatever. So I don't know if that, if that does quite what you're saying, but I know that that is a way to in learning someone's reaction to specific situations, I think it helps decide what personality type they are. And there's four of them, you know, and I don't know that any one is synonymous or goes specifically with the sheepdog or sheep, but I do know that some people, a few people reacted the way I did, and the, most of them wanted to go get help or help that child and get him out of there, not attack the ones hurting him. So I don't know what that says about me, but it was interesting to me. Well well, and it does, and then, enough, my, my wife moved jobs this week, and she had to do some, like, strength finders or some new tests, and she came home and sort of said, and someone within the testing had said, you know, don't focus so much on your weaknesses, focus on your strengths, because, you know, you never, you know, like, my, one of my weaknesses, I'm an author, I've written books, but writing doesn't come easy for me. But, you know, so I focus on what my strengths are, and I think I'm getting that in your message, Mike, and it's really beforehand, think about the type of person that you are, so when you're in the moment, play towards your strengths Absolutely. as opposed to your weaknesses, and that does come from personal reflection. So, yeah, I, I 100% understand where you're coming from on that. Chris, what we had for you, I mean, with your experience, you know, you've been in around active violence for a long time, you know, you've offered your book, 10 Minutes to Live. I'd love to get some perspective on you. I follow you. A lot of criminologists in LinkedIn, and there's a lot of conversations. Sometimes these criminologists say there's no evidence to show that training in the moment actually helps anyone. We should spend time on our on crisis intervention before, and you know there's some very interesting debates that get on um, about you know it does run high fight. Is that even the right advice? I mean, I guess my question to you is, what have you seen change, Michael, over the last maybe like three to five years, as we've seen an increase in these active incidents? What are you seeing change in people's response, maybe? Well, I'll tell you something, two things I've seen, two changes, and I won't just talk about the survivor's mentality changing, I'll talk about the killer's mentality changing. More of these people, or rather fewer of these people, are killing themselves at the end of the event like they used to. More of them, especially some of these younger people, I think that they're not thinking this through. I mean, when, when Eric, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, 4-20-1999, Columbine High School, now these were two kids Interestingly enough, they were not insane. They were not mentally ill. One was a, you know, narcissistic and sociopathic. The other was just screwed up and, you know, from hormones and suicidal and depressed. 
So he followed the other one. Those guys for two years had planned this and like so many others after them had planned on killing themselves afterwards. And I believe that they, most of these kids or most of these people rather, they're suicidal before they're homicidal. I think you said that earlier. Mm. I'm seeing more and more of these people not have suicide as the end game for them. And as I say, and I'm sure you say this as well, this type of, and it's a very specific psychological profile, being a mass killer at a party because you get beat up by a couple of guys and go to your car and come out, come back in and shoot a bunch of people. That is not the same mentality as an active shooter or an active killer. I mean, it, it's similar, but, and if you go commit a crime first and kill some people, there's, it's very specific psychological profile and it's about power and control. They, they want to get power control that they either had and lost or never felt that they had because they've been bullied, that marginalized, you know, idealism or personality or, or emotional situation like Ellie Roger in Santa Barbara. I mean, you know, anyway, I'm getting off track. Sorry. So more and more of these people in killing themselves, which is a way of keeping power and control, even as they leave this mortal world, they're starting to do it less, which bothers me because that's the playbook I like to teach this is the, their playbook, and we need to know how to handle that so we can counter them and beat them. The second thing that is changing is, and thank goodness, because they finally made a new run I'd fight video that I am very, very happy about, because it is the right message in all different all of the messages that run I'd fight should be giving. It's doing it properly. But some psychiatrist came out publicly and said, they need to rethink the fight part because they don't, it's too many people don't take that part seriously enough. They need to be prepared for the fight part because honestly, if you run or you hide and get out of there, that's great because you're safe. Probably the most important one to know well is the fight portion because if you don't know how to fight or when to fight, it's not going to do you any good. They're now fo focusing more on what I call the committing violence against your attacker because that is a forward proactive taking action way of handling the situation which means you are courageous and you're bold and you're thinking about moving forward if all you're doing is running and hiding and thinking about going backwards you're already almost in a victim mentality that's why in my program leave instead of run running is what we do from the boogeyman if you leave it you are calmly making a decision to empower yourself to extract yourself from that situation if you're impeding the killer's ability to get to you by creating time and space you are still empowered you're not hiding like a little kid from the boogeyman and then if you're committing violence against them it's a forward you know proactive taking action sort of thing so Anyway, I, I, again, I, I digress. The things that I've changed is more killers, or fewer killers are killing themselves at the end of the events, which used to be more than 50%. And we are finally starting to wake up and go, gosh, maybe fighting or taking, you know, taking action and committing violence is something we need to get people prepared for instead of, you know, pussyfooting around it. I mean, we need to be serious about the the fact that if someone charges into a classroom, if you're the closest person, you might have to take a chair and beat that guy or whatever you got to do, because if you don't do something, there's a good chance you're going to get killed. But at least for me, listen, I'm going to die fighting. I'm going to go out fighting and I'm going to, I'm going to inflict as much pain and damage on that person that's trying to hurt me as I can. I believe that's a mentality we have to have. And I can't remember the name of the lady, but she's the former head of the FBI 
active shooter you now i think her first name could be jackie i'll try and find it and put it in a, a show notes for this podcast but she i listened to a podcast that she did recently and i think she said that 10 percent of all active shooters have been ended by an unarmed person i think there's my friend Dr. James Denzi from the Violence Project, I think there's 188 since 1966. You know, 10% of those have been ended by someone who's been unarmed against an armed assailant. I mean, that really reinforces what you're saying, Michael. But, you know, I mean, that's quite a high number with someone who's unarmed against an assailant. So, yeah, that's good. Well, thanks for sharing those two things. And I guess the last thing then, as we sort of start to wrap up our conversation, for the people listening, they could be working within a church, they could be working within a school, just within their day-to-day life. What are a couple of things that you would want people to take away from this conversation to know that if they're in a moment, you can do this. If you're in a moment, feel empowered. You know, if in the moment, this is going to keep you safe. What would what would you want a, a couple of things to be as a message, Michael, to give to people that are listening to this podcast? Well, first and foremost... You have got to know what the warning... Look, the best way to survive an active killer event or any form of violence is to prevent it from happening, right? Unfortunately, myself included, I am talking about reacting and surviving when the thing happens. I mean, I talk a little bit about preparing, but if we can avoid it altogether, that would be best. You've got to know what the warning signs... Of course, a random act of violence like the mosque in New Zealand, he had never been there before. He walked in. They had no way of knowing this was coming. But there's plenty of schools and maybe churches or maybe malls or families out there. You've got to know what the warning or, of course, workplaces, which is, you know, almost half. It's actually, yeah, it's almost half of all active shooter events are retail, commercial, commerce, whatever. People have to know what the warning signs are so they can recognize them and then do something about it. You can't just go, oh, my friend that I've worked with for five years is really exhibiting some strange behavior. Bah, that's all right. They're just having a bad day. You've got to actually do something about it. And then also the mindset thing. You know, my my program is equal parts of mindset and method. Run, I'd fight is method, method, method. But you've got to prepare your mind. I do something called a visualization exercise where I actually have everyone close their eyes and I walk them through this, down this journey of what if this happened in your workplace or your church or the the school or whatever. Mentally prepare yourself through what I call being proactively reactionary, creating your reaction before you need it. Because we know that in times of stress, we default to our level of training. So train your mind and train your body. Look, I ask this question in all of my classes and only 30% or so probably, if that, have ever know any form of self-defense, any form. A two-hour class at the community center will give you more self-defense training than what most people have. That's important for two reasons. One, you physically know what to do, whether it's using a weapon or, you know, hands or whatever. But two, when you think you know what to do, you're going to have more confidence to do something than if you think, I don't know what to do. That person's got a gun. People are dying. I'm going to die. And you just resign yourself to the victim mentality of going, I'm not going to go home and see my loved ones again. You cannot do that. You have got to have a strong will. You've got to be absolutely determined and committed to a positive outcome, and you have got to be ready to take action. The last thing you can do is succumb to your emotional reaction, which can literally paralyze you because you're thinking, I'm never going to see the people I love again. 
rather than if you're seeing those pic, the, you know, the, the faces of those loved ones and saying, I'm never going to see them again. You see the pictures of the lo those loved ones and go, I'm going to see you tonight. I'm coming home to you and I'm going to do absolutely anything and everything it takes. If I have got to tear that person limb from limb with my own bare hands, I will come home to the people I love because I'm not going to let that person in their garbage, whatever's going on in their life, prevent me from seeing the people that I love because I don't deserve it and neither do they. So, you know, clearly I'm very passionate about this, but I, in studying psychology, I'm not a psychological, a psychology, anything. I'm not an expert. I've just, it's been a study of mine my whole life because of certain circumstances with people in my family. And I know how powerful the mind is. And it can either be your biggest enemy or your greatest ally, depending on which one you choose. Michael, thank you for joining me today. I know you've mentioned your live program a few times. What is the best place for people to find more information about you? Uh, the website is activeshootersurvivaltraining.com. The book is 10 Minutes to Live, Surviving an Active Shooter Using Alive. It's a Amazon bestseller in six categories. It's on, the, it's on my website. It's on Amazon. It's on the ASIS bookstore, the Sherm bookstore. You can find it. Second edition is out there. Well, Michael, it's been an honor and a privilege to talk to you. And I know I'm sure we'll be in communication in the future. We have a very similar mindset. So thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Church Security Made Simple podcast. If you're looking for training on how to keep you and your church community safe, or if you're interested in working with me on my five-week group coaching program, please head over to worshipsecurity.org. And if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, don't forget to rate and review wherever you are listening. Now, I'll be back with you on the next episode. But until then, stay safe, have a blessed day. And remember, always plan, prepare and protect your ministry.